Welcome to Day Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello, gentlemen. How's things? Hello. Happy How's forward. it going? Yeah, good, good. Can't complain. Can't complain. Happy 4th of July Eve. Is that a thing? Oh, yeah. It know. will be eventually. Don't worry. Okay. Happy 4th of July Eve to you guys. Um, <laughs> uh, it'll be obviously passed by the time the episode comes out, but um, to all the Yankee Doodles who listen, um, congrats on defeating the English. That's Is that what your, that's what your thing is? Is that Independence is Day? A signing of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, we didn't defeat okay. the British yet. <laughs> oh, you hadn't defeated them yet. I okay. mean, the French, really, but, you know, same thing. The French? Wait, hold on, I'm so confused. <laughs> When did you defeat the? When did you kick the Brits out? What, what uh, year was that? What war was that? Uh, the Revolutionary War. The Revolution. And then again in the War of eighteen twelve. Okay, as long as you beat the English at some point, that's all I care about. That's why I watch the Patriot every year. Oh, you okay. want tr- if you want good propaganda, you watch the Patriot. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, so today, as listeners, you may have guessed from the title um, of this episode. We're talking about two films um, that both feature urban sort of contemporary settings, but with characters who live their life by the code of the samurai. Um, This is kind of a symbiotic episode because the first film we're going to talk about was very heavily influenced by the second film we're going to talk about. So we're going to see some crossover in terms of of the discussion, of course. Um, So we'll jump right in. The first film we're going to talk about is from 1999. Uh, it's by Jim Jarmusch and it's called Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. Um, this was my third Jarmusch film, I think. Yeah. Um, after, obviously, we talked about, um, what was the one that we talked about? Down by Law. Mm-hmm. Down by Law, yeah. And then I'd seen a, a different one myself. Um, Stranger Than Paradise? Or? Stranger Than Paradise, yeah. I really loved that one. <laughs> Down by Law, I thought was... You know, it was it was cool. It was fine. Uh, Ghost Dog really liked this one, so I'm on I'm on good terms with Jim Jarmusch um, at the moment from the sort of little films I've seen. Like I'll be honest, this film was kind of um, this was one that I actually put off for like a long time, and it's gonna sound like a really superficial asshole reason, but I just thought the title was dumb as shit. So I was like, I'm not watching this movie. This movie is fucking. This movie is gonna be so dumb. And then, like a little sheep that I am, Criterion put it out. And I was like, oh, maybe this movie's good after all. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm glad I, you know, I, we kind of got sort of forced to watch it because it got voted in the film club. Because um, I, I did I did really, really enjoy it. Do, do either of you guys want to sort of jump in with initial thoughts? Had you guys seen this before, this first viewing? I've seen else? it before, yeah. You saw it, okay. Yeah. Yeah, you want to you wanna go, Zach, and then I'll do like the whole, you know, ratings and everything? Sure. Um I really don't like this movie. Like at <laughs> well, all. Okay. I was not. I don't like it. <laughs> um, we're gonna kind of compare uh, later, uh, so I'll try to refrain from doing that. But I feel like the next movie is a comparison of what a good version of this looks like. <laughs> um, <laughs> none of the me and Jarmusch have a very interesting relationship. Anyway, um, I like Down by Law. I actually really like that movie. I haven't liked a single other thing he's done. Okay. You you know, one of the complaints I hear from people that don't like Jeremy is they they just don't think he's funny. 
He's, <laughs> it doesn't work for me. I'm not going to okay. say he's not funny, but his my, mine and his humor do not match. Yeah, like yeah. at all, we are not compatible. Uh, and I'll even say this: like I watched uh, Dead Don't Die came out. I don't know, was it been like three years now? Um, there are moments of that that me and my girlfriend still quote because there are some funny things in there. But like the whole thing, like this one, I guess the way I sum up is like we'll talk about uh, Jeff Costello who actually feels like this really cool calculated character and ghost dog here feels like a cosplay of that idea. Like somebody who watched Jeff Costello watched the man with no name and said, how can I be super cool and be that like strong silent type, but he's never silent. And it's not, I don't know. It just doesn't work for me at all. Like it just feels like a cosplay of that idea. So, That's an interesting point we'll definitely pick up later because I, I do have feelings on the actual character himself that I kind of want to talk about at some point. Okay. So definitely pick so, that up. I think there's uh, that leads really well into what I like about the movie. So, okay, objectively, um, Ghost Dog is currently 1,986. So it's up there with um, a De Palma movie called Body Double. That's a good um, movie. Yeah, there's you're starting to get into some some deep cuts here. There's uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's a little little bit more deep cuts at this point. It's actually pretty close to Hidden Fortress from from Kurosawa, Great Train Robbery. So still pretty you know pretty pretty good movies. Um, the reason I like this movie so much is actually because I like the humor from Jarmusch, and I think that the thing there's a misconception about him. Um, by the way, I'm not trying to convince you to like it, but I think that the reason that I do like it is because I think he puts humor into almost everything he does. Like, I think almost every scene in this movie, there's a little bit of like a side smile, kind of like sarcasm or playfulness or something to it, including the scenes where Ghost Dog is up on the roof, stabbing at the air with a sword and stuff. Like, I think all that's meant to be funny. I don't think it's meant to be, uh, you know, hey, check out like this awesome samurai. Uh, without a little bit of irony in it. You know, I think I've seen, I just did a quick count. I've seen eight Jarmusch movies now. Uh, I love I love him quite a lot. Um, and, I, and my humor also has a lot of irony in it. So I think we just kind of get along in that sense. Like, you know, Tom Waits is the same way. There's a crew of, of these guys that were kind of banded together and running together for years. And they all have that, that that same sense of humor where like they're in they're they're every man they're they're working men like they try to you know portray themselves that way but there's also like a like an intellectual kind of approach to that and they they kind of not poke fun I, I don't i think they're sincere but they just point out irony and humor in like these situations and so um that i, I think he does that here as well uh and there's some scenes we'll get into later that are just i think brilliantly funny um uh, overtly funny, not just like iron, you know, not just kind of sly irony, but, but overtly funny, but that's what I, that's why I like it. Um, uh, but again, not trying to convince you. I, I get it. I mean, I please convince me. I would love to go back and rewatch it and it just click for me. Cause like, I like the idea of it. I really do. Um, Forrest Whitaker is just a weird choice for me. <laughs> I don't know if that's the problem, but I just think he's an interesting choice for the main character. I, I get why he does often play kind of stoic mm-hmm. characters. I get why. Um, one thing I kind of just want to pick up on from what Chris is saying, I don't remember this film being funny. <laughs> Was I supposed to find this film funny? 
Uh, I don't remember laughing. I guess in an <laughs> ironic way, you know, like, you know, you see something that's ironic and you're like, oh, okay. You know, I talk, I, I, t- I, I don't know. personally I, ever find Jarmusha stuff like laugh out loud funny, but it's just kind of like, oh, it's a funny situation. Yeah. Like the only funny part I thought was that gangster who's like really into gangster rap. <laughs> oh, yeah. like, you know it's like the 65 year old sort of mobster going around rapping um was a public enemy i think he yeah. really likes he mentioned in the bathroom yeah yeah that's like i found that funny um Wait, didn't really... the scene where the camera's switching back and forth between the mob bosses and the guy that hires ghost dog and they're like wait you communicate with the pigeon and he's like yeah pigeon and like and they're like that whole scene there was no you didn't laugh at that scene i suppose it was Kind of oh, funny. I was like, yeah, I was like dying in that scene. But it's again, oh. it's like that's what I'm saying about Jarmusch, right? Like, I think it's like it, the you, the the level where you you know, if you if you're kind of think he's funny, I think his films are elevated uh, to to another level. And if not, then you know, yeah. But like, I liked the film. I thought it was I thought it was cool. You know, that's the way I can sort of best sum it up. I thought it was a cool movie. So when you're talking about you know laughing at Forrest Whitaker on the roof with a samurai sword. You were laughing. I was going, that's fucking cool. I wish I was okay. on the roof with a samurai sword, you know, fucking around. Uh, that's that's cool. Um, so, you know, maybe, yeah, I think maybe it's just sort of people pick things up different ways. Um, yeah, that's that's funny. I don't remember laughing at all. One, one thing I found kind of like ironically funny, like at first was the fact that he couldn't communicate with that one guy, like because yeah. they spoke different languages. But then yeah. they kept doing it, and I'm like, okay, this has kind of run its course now. <laughs> French, that was kind French of my problem. Guy. I was like, yeah, I get it. It's kind of funny. The guy speaks French, uh, the ice cream fan. Um, yeah, again, I didn't really find it funny. I, you know, I just thought it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was an interesting creative choice. <laughs> I mean, okay, if Jarmusch was in the room, I'm gonna. I, this is always a dangerous thing to do. I'm not saying that he set out to make a comedy necessarily, right? I guess what I'm saying is I think he set out to make a cool samurai film that kind of feels like Le Samurai in, in parts, um, but is like a Jarmusch version of that where, you know, the, the cool is like, is like up a notch uh, and, and, it's, and there's his type of humor in it. Um, like, I don't think the scenes with the girl were funny, but I was smiling and that, you know, he, there's this little like clone of, 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 of uh, Forrest Whitaker, basically. Right. Who's like into the same stuff. And he finds this connection with this, you know, 10 or 11 year old girl or whatever. I don't know how old she is. Um, and I just thought that was cool. And I kind of was like smiling in that scene, not like laughing hysterically, but I think there's like a, there's like a, I don't know, like a pleasantness to that or like, a, you know, I just, I was enjoying it. Yeah, I yeah. like the choices that he made. Like one thing, the way I, I kind of came away with this film, like just thinking of it overall stylistically and everything was, this is like a really good version of a Quentin Tarantino movie in terms of how it works in, uh, you know, pop culture references, how it takes things from certain films, but without cranking it up to the level that Tarantino does where he just blatantly steals things um, you know that, that's who I came across I was like if Tarantino was good this is probably what a Tarantino film would be like <laughs> um, you know that's 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 how I came away because like there's lots of reference not just to the samurai there's like references to like just cinematic violence in general 
you know the whole film is just packed full of references to violence you know from from pop culture and things like that which i which i want to dig into a little bit but um it's also cool as hell and yeah now that you're talking about them sure i can definitely see that there's funny moments in here apart from the ones that i the one i initially remembered you know, the whole conversation about the pigeon and stuff in hindsight yeah that's actually pretty funny um, I wasn't laughing at the time, but I get why other people would laugh at it, you know, without <laughs> without making fun of it, you know, that kind of way. Yeah, um, it's, it's you know, it's 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 funny. To, it's funnier to some people than it would be to, to others. Um, but yeah, I thought I thought the film was really cool um, overall. Um, I thought Forrest Whitaker like was good. I, I, I liked I liked his character. The only problem I kind of have and the only kind of question I had sort of out of this uh, and the samurai is kind of the same, I suppose. Maybe we're not supposed to know, but like, why? Why? Why does this? Like, I understand why he, um, why he feels like he owes the mob boss. Because obviously, we get that backstory that this the mob guy sort of saved his life, you know, when he was getting bed up by some dudes. So that's understandable, you know, that whole idea of you know you saved my life, so you know I'm going to do you favors. I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to you know look after you, whatever. Obviously, that's kind of cranked up with that whole sort of idea of you know owing a life debt, you know serving someone who saved your life. That's sort of taken from you know that kind of ancient Orient or whatever. But I never got, I never understood like why he was like so into the samurai aspect of it. Like that was never really, that was never really like we we just have to assume this guy is like just super into kurosawa movies or something yeah i I guess it's that and it's like you know samurais have this weird honorableness to them Mm -hmm. then i I think that can be attractive like i I, that's what we haven't got to when we talk about samurai that's kind of what i get from him is almost like this out of time element like things were better when at least men had honor even if we were doing bad things so is this like the grown-up version of the weird anime kid that we all went to high, that we all went to like high school yeah. with is this like as an as an adult you know if they actually follow through with the weird shit that they talk about like they were actually a good contract killer and they, yeah but they couldn't give up the weeb stuff yeah that sounds like that's that's sad. what i'm thinking okay yeah. he that's really funny actually doesn't he give the the girl uh rashomon isn't that the book that he gives her uh, yeah, Rashomon, because it's a Rashomon is like a set of short stories, and one of the stories from that set is obviously the one of Rashomon, the film. Yeah, which is so not that, a very good samurai film. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, in terms of like, if you're looking for a good samurai film, you don't watch Rashomon because it's not really good samurai film. Um, no, a a plus movie, but D plus for for samurai. Action. Yeah, absolutely, five star <laughs> film, one star for samurai action. Um, for That's sure. funny. Um, no, here, here's what I think, right? I, again, no idea, no idea. Because I had the same question, but here's where, here's where I went to. What if there's just a simple premise of sitting down and like enjoying these samurai movies and saying, what would it look like if that was in, in, in today's setting? Like, is there, is there anything that could be kind of like comparable in today's world, you know, to that? And so you have to take some liberties because the, the answer is really no, right? Like there's no system of honor today that's, that matches what they did in the samurai time mm-hmm. um, that I can think of anyways, but you know, may- maybe in North Korea, <laughs> um, but like, what would it look like if you just, if this was in a modern New York kind of setting? Um, and I think even again, like going back to this and I, I'm not trying to convince all of the humor, but I think even in that idea, there's a little bit of humor in it. Like it might not be funny, 
but you kind of have to suspend reality a little bit and you have to, you know, Forrest Whitaker wouldn't be this loyal for this long. Um, especially once, you know, the same guy who is his boss is trying to come after him. Right. In, in a, in a roundabout way. Yeah. Unless he's a super weeb, which is also possible. <laughs> I've got a like of that theory. Yeah. Forrest Whitaker as a, as a teenager was just like super into anime and shopping at hot topic running around Naruto running and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think we've cracked this film. Forrest Whitaker was just like a big dork in high school. <laughs> and that's why, that's probably why he was getting bed up, you know, in, in his origin story. It's probably why they're beating him up. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, Stop talking about Dragon Ball Z. Nobody cares. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, um, sure. Sure. Why not? <laughs> um, is it worth spending, you know, 30 seconds just kind of going through the plot of the movie? If oh, anybody yeah. hasn't seen it. I suppose that would have helped when I first talked about it. Um, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, at the plot. So, like, I'll just, I'll read what Letterboxd has. Um, let's pull it up here. Um, it's not a lot. So, an African-American mafia hitman who models himself after the samurai of old finds himself targeted for death by the mob. Um, yeah, it's kind of simplistic. Um, essentially, one mob, the, the mob guy that he works for sends him out to kill uh, a made man, a made mobster, because he's going out with his daughter. The rest of the mob mobsters don't like that. So they say, you got to take out Ghost Dog or we're going to take you out. And that's essentially the crux of the film. So Ghost Dog finds himself sort of torn between the guy he's sort of sworn loyalty to and then all the other mobsters. So, you know, he'll just try and kill all the other mobsters so his boss is not to kill him, basically. There's, Zach, you brought up this idea of him being an anachronism. And I think that's really important to, uh, so going with the dweeb theory, or what's it called? Weeb theory? We, a weeb. Weeb. A weeb. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm roughly familiar with the term. <laughs> um, going with the weeb theory, uh, I guess. But look, he, I think he is a man of a different era right, in different time, at least his character is. And I think the fact that he communicates with pigeons and that he, he lives on a rooftop, or maybe there's like a little, there's a little house up there on the roof that he sleeps in. But, you know, essentially he lives this sort of, he's in the city, but he's certainly not of the city, right? Like he's a man of a different time, different era. Uh, and he's a very simple man with this one highly specific set of skills that allows him to be a hitman, and, and that's how he lives, right? Um, and we don't know exactly how, but he has the respect of the neighborhood. I don't know if he takes care of people or if he's just been around there his whole life, but you know, there's there's random scenes. It, it feels important to the movie because there's random scenes where he's just walking by people and, and they'll just say like, hey, respect, ghost hey, dog. It's ghost dog, yeah, yeah. And so it seems to be important to his character at some level. I never quite figured out why they would spend seconds on that, but um, but there it is. Uh, and so he's he's kind of in the community, but certainly not of the community. You know, he's like in this world, but not of this world. So I, I think there's something in that that, that I uh, was intrigued by. Uh, and um, and so, you know, if, uh, basically he has no place other than he has he's a very good killer. He kills with a with a kind of a, a this efficiency that's it's important for his job. And he kind of hides in plain sight, right? It's hard to find him because there's no, he has no address. He has no phone number. Like there's no, 
there's no trace of him other than these pigeons, right? And I think if there's no real spoilers for this movie, right? Is it okay if I just kind of like, yeah? No, I don't think so. You know, so in the scene where the bosses kill his pigeons, I think other than obviously upsetting him uh, and upsetting me as well, I think what that scene did was it kind of showed that they're they're cutting any ties that he has to this world, right? Because his whole existence is sort of through this mafia bus, right? Like that's his whole, like that's his, you know, if we're using samurai terms, like that's his castle, kind of, right? Like that's the, the, the you know, land that he's protecting. And so with those ties cut, like he doesn't really, I mean, other than that French guy who sells ice cream, uh, he doesn't really have any ties. And so I just thought that was, uh, yeah. Anyways, I think that's, that's him, right? He's, he's a contract killer, but not for anybody, for that one specific guy. And he's betrayed. And we find him at the end, um, sort of, you know, he's going to be maybe a, a Ronin now, or like he's not going to have a master now. Yeah. So I don't know exactly what his life's going to be like, but, but he's going to probably find, either find a new castle or, or maybe he's going to branch out and just be a hired hitman. But um, yeah, that's, I think that's the summary for in my eyes. It's kind of like important points. I think listening to talking about it, I think an element that I find interesting, even if it doesn't quite work for me, but I can see why it would work for every, a lot of other people is these type of characters are almost like mystical in a way. Like they're living legends, you know, they're Max Rockatansky from the Mad Max movies. They're the man with no name from um, the dollars trilogy. They're almost myth in that sense. Yeah. But you're kind of taking him and grounding him to this living myth that feels so grounded. It's kind of hard to, I don't know. I think that's where, where, maybe where I have a hard time gripping in a sense, but it's kind of an interesting way to go about it in that sense as well. Totally. Um, and I think even if you want to just click on that for a second, you mentioned the dollar trilogy, you know, there is a lot of ties to Italian cinema, right? So even the main bad guy is this guy named Henry Silva. Are you all familiar with him? No, I know a bunch of the, the actors were all sort of character actors. Uh, not, not too familiar with, but any particular one of them. I didn't recognize any of them anyway. So Henry Silva, um, his face is very familiar. It's like, he's a little bit of an older guy and he's like got a really like pockmarked kind of face. Um, and he was big into Italian cinema. So if you go back into the 60s, there was a, a series of these movies. Have you all ever seen a, a De Leo movie, Fernando De Leo? I have not. Oh, Zach, you would love them, by the way. Um, it's these, imagine like a police, a Policitecci film, like these kind of police, you know, mafia type movies from the 60s. Um, but just with like badass, like banging soundtracks and like a lot of violence. Um, I think you'd really like the Leo movies. Um, but so Henry Silva was an actor in a few of them. Um, and that's, you know, kind of, he was in the original Ocean's Eleven briefly. Uh, but then getting into, he was in the Manchurian Candidate, uh, but then he moved to Italy for a while and, or at least was in some movies there. And I think his most famous roles are, are sort of in those, in those types of films. Um, at least for me, I mean, you know, he was in the Italian Connection as well. I don't know if y'all ever saw that. Um, that's the one, the one that I'm kind of thinking of. Um, but anyways, he's just got this, he's, you know, he's got a very, a great face for B cinema for like genre cinema. 
and he's he's acting is always like a little bit you know kind of kind of hammy <laughs> um and so i think you know uh, uh what's his name jarmusch bringing him into this movie was a nod to sort of that his career and maybe some italian genres uh cinema and then a lot of the other folks he used were just more like character actors from crime movies they just had great like mafia you know type faces um but I just, I don't know. I love the fact that he, like the, the mob, it, 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 there, was, there was humor for me, even in the idea that Forrest Whitaker was serving these particular guys, because they were a bunch of goofballs, right? Like they probably weren't even worthy of his time and respect for how good he was as a killer. Um, so yeah, anyways. Well, it's kind of like, you bringing that up, it's kind of going on to Adam's point about the whole Tarantino thing. Like, you know, Tarantino bringing in like Pam Greer. For a sex for a black plantation uh, film, yeah, 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 like that. On on that, like I'd mentioned, I'd alluded to this earlier. In this film, there's a lot of a lot of aspects of the story and uh, visually and stylistically and stuff that pays homage to a bunch of different pop culture, and it's all centered mainly on on violence and violent sort of cinemas, violent films, violent scenes. So like. Obviously, we have the samurai that, you know, it's just so much stuff is based on the samurai in terms of like just the general sort of characterization of Ghost Dog, the fact that he sort of follows a samurai code in the modern world. He even has that little like electronic key that helps him in and out of stuff, as opposed yeah. to Jeff Costello's ring of lots and lots of keys for citrons. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, they have that similarity. I think there's also similarity to Branded to Kill as well from Suzuki. Oh yeah. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of that as well. Um, obviously with Ghost Dog, it's centered around the mafia genre, you know, the, the gangster genre. And uh, for me anyway, apart from horror films, I think mafia and gangster films are probably the sort of most cruel and most violent films genre right. out there. Like even like I rewatched Goodfellas a couple of weeks ago because Neve had never seen it. And I was like, Jesus, some of these, some of the way they kill these guys are just horrible. Um so obviously you have that aspect you have throughout the film we see cartoons different characters watching cartoons and it's always violent cartoons even at the very end you know the mafia guy's daughter is watching itchy and scratchy you can't get more violent than itchy and scratchy and you know that's literally the whole point of them is to to sort of ramp up ramp up the violence yeah 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 you talked about the pigeons earlier you know the pigeons this is just me spitballing here i I have no sources to this but for me like the pigeons could be you know a reference to two things yeah you know either the fact you know marilyn brando's character and on the waterfront similarly looks after pigeons on a rooftop that's quite a violent film yeah Uh, also linked to mobsters you could also link it to that famous story of how mike tyson became a boxer (laughs) because some guys killed his pigeons so he wanted to get it get back at them so that's yeah. you know you could link in there and then to sort of round it all up then the soundtrack is done by a guy called the rizza i don't know if you guys are too familiar with your with your 90s hip-hop uh but the rizza is one of the founding members of the wu-tang clan and obviously as their name alludes to they are very much into their their kung fu sort of shaw brothers cinema and um, so obviously they're they're super violent super fun films as well so for me this is why i kind of alluded i said earlier this is maybe like a better version of a tarantino film 
because this yeah. is full of references to pop culture, but it's not in your face and it's not blatantly stealing pop culture the way that Tarantino does. Um, yeah. And that's what I really like about this film. There's a lot of cool moments that you pinpoint and say, oh, maybe that's a reference to this or maybe that's a reference to that, as opposed to a Tarantino film where you say, oh, well, he stole that from that film. Oh, he stole this from that film. Oh, he's reading Ezekiel 2517. Isn't that a ripoff of something that's from the start of, uh, uh, I can't remember that Japanese, uh, Sonny Chiba, it's a Sonny Chiba film. Like that literal, that whole Ezekiel 2517, Tarantino didn't even write that. He stuck all that from a Sonny Chiba film. So, you know, there's there's a big difference between them in terms of how they get their references across. I much prefer how Jarmusch does it in a much more subtle way. And I would really like to then, this, I think this makes this film very rewatchable as well, because I'd love to rewatch yeah. it again and try and pick up stuff that I didn't pick up uh, first time around. When Adam starts talking about Tarantino, I'm always waiting for the part where it'd be like, you know what's the worst part? The hypocrisy. And just leaving <laughs> it there. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I was, I was about to bring up Riza next. So, you know, Riza is, a board of, is on the board of directors for ACFA. That's cool. Uh, he has a huge archive. The dude is a film historian. Like, I know he's known for being a member of Wu-Tang and, and you know, rightfully so. But the guy is like, I mean, he's deep into, into film. Um, he, made, he directed films. He's directed a, at least one film that I'm aware of anyway. The Man with yeah. the Golden Arm or something like that. Yeah, and he's, and he's done, you know, he's been a composer for several. I think he was even a composer for scenes in Kill Bill. Um, speaking of a Tarantino connection. But... Um, my favorite nickname for him is the Rizza Rector. <laughs> um, he gave himself a couple of nicknames. That's my favorite one. Other than Ruler Zigzag Zigala. Um, I'm sure that's a reference to something that I just don't pick up on. But um, I, I think Rizza is one of my favorite sort of behind the scenes kind of advocates for, for genre film. I mean, he's, he's super active in it. So I like his you know, involvement here. He was even, he even had a small role in this movie um uh, he did yeah he was wearing the he was wearing the camouflage as soon as i saw him i was like that's the result yeah Uh, he's a a taller dude sort of lanky and he was wearing like all camouflage if i remember correctly yeah so maybe that was a moment where they just wanted to get him in the movie uh because his scene was a bit random otherwise but um standard cameo i think yeah 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 exactly um so yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a it's a mafia movie about guys that watch Itchy and Scratchy and dance to uh, uh, is it Public Enemy? Is that right? Public, public Enemy, yeah, Public Enemy. And and can't fathom how one of the members of the family communicates with the hitman through pigeons. I mean, <laughs> right I don't know. It's funny, um, but but not to everybody. I that it's a good summation of my kind of humor. If you ever want to uh, know the, yeah. the things that goes on inside my head. Like as someone who had who had no interest in watching this film for many many years, um, and and really enjoyed it. Like if you're listening and you're maybe on the fence about watching it, I think there probably is something for everyone in it. Even though Zach say didn't really like it, I'm sure he can pick one thing that he did like. Um, oh yeah, there there's funny moments in it for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like I guess re- like when you recommend a John Waters film, you're always like, I can understand if you hate this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing I've learned is to now not assume what film Zach is going to like or not like. I, I oh, do you think was, I was going to like this one? I thought this was like Stonewall. Zach's going to really like this movie. <laughs> so, I, it's kind of like the same reaction to you had. I, I remember, uh, spoilers for a future episode, we'll be talking about Persona at some point. And when you reacted to Chris's review of Persona and you said something similar that you just... Yeah, I really thought Chris was going to like Persona, but we'll get into that. <laughs> that's a 
That'll be in a few weeks, listeners. Uh, get ready for a persona. Um, Hot takes number two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I think it's a good, I don't know if there's too much more to say about Ghost Dog, right? I mean, I think I'm so happy that we have three different views on it. It probably is a pretty good summary of, you're either going to laugh a few times and think it's a dumb movie or think it's cool or, or pretty much have a big dumb smile on your face the whole time and laugh like I did. I think those are, a pretty good summary of the reactions to this movie right yeah for sure um so uh yeah the only thing i'll say is uh what's y'all's favorite jarmusch movie is that i don't know how many you've seen but i think you've seen um, a few right yeah i've seen uh down by law i've seen ghost dog i've seen the dead don't die mm-hmm. i've seen patterson and i've seen uh only lovers left alive um and what's funny is it, he he's a very he's like the definition of hit or miss for me. I like Down by Law and Only Lovers Left Alive. I think The Dead Don't Die is watchable, and I don't like Ghost Dog or um, Oh God, I, the other one I said now I can't even remember. But yeah, I would, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, probably my favorite's Down by Law. From what I've seen. Down by Law. Yeah, uh, I've only seen three, so. Stranger, Stranger in Paradise, first one I saw, and I really like that one. It's very, uh, very French New Wavy. Um, I neither one of y'all have seen Dead Men. No, oh, it's on my, it's on my list. Shit, yes, I've seen Dead Men. I like Dead Men. <laughs> that one would probably be my favorite. Okay, I was surprised. Yeah, I was like Zach. I feel like you'd like Dead Men, but um, yeah, I own it. <laughs> Actually, I own it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's a, a an easy one to really love. Um, I think I'm one of the few people that loves Night on Earth. I think it's just a cool random idea. Um, and then mystery train is, is, is really good as well. But um, I don't know. I just, the only, I haven't seen anything after broken flowers. So anything after 2005, I'm, I'm a bit behind. I need to catch up. Um, but night on earth is basically, it just follows five different cab drivers going around in five different cities. And uh, it's just crazy stories that they get inside their cab. It's an it's interesting, like easy watch um, entertaining, but uh, that's it. I've seen, yeah. I've seen I've seen clips from Coffee and Cigarettes. I've seen like a couple of like the vignettes on their yeah. own. So but it's been it's been it's been like 10 years. Yeah, I don't think that one would probably well, I mean, I guess everything is always somebody's favorite. I don't know if that one would probably be anybody's favorite, but I think it's a fun watch. It's interesting. It's just basically if you want to see like cool people sitting around drinking coffee and, and making jokes and like <laughs> it's a simple premise. Uh, but I, I liked it as well. Uh, and now, uh, briefly, you know, we always do this collection corner segment. Speaking of samurais, right now, Barnes and Noble is slashing the prices of Criterion and Arrow films. And uh, I, I wasn't planning on going in early. I like to try to go in a little bit after the mad rush. Um, but kind of on a road trip, we needed a break. So we popped into a Barnes and Noble yesterday. And I uh, got some books for the little one. And then I wound up taking home uh, Tarkovsky's Mirror. And a really nice set. Very really nice set. It packaging. looks beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, Shaft. And then uh, I got um, one other one that I can't remember off the top of my head, but I just, I just left with three. It was an Arrow film. Oh, it'll come to me here in a second. But I wound up getting three movies. Uh, and I might try to say that that's it. You know, the funny thing is, I remember for years, I, w- I was just thinking about how good of a deal 
the the Barnes and Noble sale was. And I mean, compared to regular prices, you know, it's pretty good. But I don't go as crazy for it as I used to because on any given day, a Criterion movie is going to be 24 bucks on Amazon or 20, you know, on, on some of these sites, 24, 25 bucks. So it dropping down to 20 bucks all of a sudden is not like worth, you know, I think losing my mind over. So One of the of- frustrating things is they used to, me and my girlfriend will split the Barnes and Noble thing, the <laughs> yearly cost. And I'll do it one year. She doesn't want. Um, and the frustrating thing is they used to take a, an additional 10% off. Oh, yeah. And now they don't do that. And I'm like, it used to be 18 bucks to get yeah. a Criterion thing. Now, that's uh, that was a little frustrating. To me. Well, the, the, the person at the counter yesterday tried to sell me on the membership deal, right? Because I walked up with a couple movies and a couple books and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, maybe because it's 25 bucks. And I was like, maybe how much am I going to save? And she looked and she was like, three dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Not worth it. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. They took it away. It was a, it's unfortunate. But um, yeah, I think the only reason I kind of stick with uh, Criterion is just because if I can avoid buying from Amazon, I try to <laughs> as totally. much as possible. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I was pissed off when I went to Barnes & Noble's website. And I was like, let me just see what happens. And like, get me go, let me go as far as choosing a country. And I was like, holy shit, a big, huge list. Because I remember during COVID the last couple of years, they were only shipping within the US. They weren't shipping mm. outside the US at all. And I brought up a whole big list of countries. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then I buy some stuff. And I was scrolling, 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 looking for Ireland. And it wasn't there. And then I went and looked at it. Like, they will literally ship anywhere that's not the European Union. They will ship to freaking Fiji but they won't <laughs> ship to Ireland. It's There must be some kind of trade block yeah. or something. I couldn't understand what the reason would be, but like the fact that they would ship to the middle of the Pacific Ocean or to like, you know, mainland Africa, no respect if we have any African listeners, but like if you live in Djibouti and Barnes & Noble will ship to you and not ship to me in Ireland or even like the UK or France or, you know, any of the major European countries, it was just very bizarre and I got very annoyed and I closed well, the website after filling my basket. So here's my question for you, Adam. Do you guys have oil? No, you don't get anything. <laughs> yeah. Or, or you could just plan it. You could find a, a hotel in Fiji to ship it to and then plan a trip there to go. Pick it up. <laughs> Excuse to go to Fiji. Like, yeah, go ahead and tell your fiance. We're not having the wedding. We're going to take a trip. to Fiji. Exactly. I'm sure she won't be. She won't mind that. That'll be okay. I think, <laughs> I think that will go down fine. What I, what I should realistically do is just ship all my shit to you guys and then pay for you to ship it to me. Um, but I don't think it would, I don't think with the Honestly, shipping it to me, it probably won't even work out as a, as a discount. So Adam, I have something I need to send you anyway that I've been putting off and Chris too. So if you actually do that, let me know and I need to send you stuff anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, because it'll make me actually do it because it's just been sitting on my desk for like three months now. Welcome. Is it a surprise or can we ask? <laughs> it's a surprise. Okay. Yeah. Well, well maybe but it'll make me do it. So if you decide to when, do that, let me know. when does the sale end? Because I don't get paid again until the end of the month. Um, Barnes is all month usually. Okay. Maybe at the end of the month, actually, I might get like a couple of things shipped. And then if you get a estimate on the shipping cost to Ireland, then I can just like send you the money in PayPal or something to ship it over to me. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like, that sounds like a good deal to me. Perfect. We'll roll with that. Um, I'll do my I only have a couple of bits that I picked up um, to a couple of region B exclusives um, because I can 
Um, I bought a few Eureka pieces. One is a new release, and then two are some previous releases from like a couple of years ago that I thought were out of print, but like they seem to be like back in print now, which is really cool. So the two older releases are one film is one I've mentioned on the podcast before, and I've recommended it to you in particular, Zach, uh, which is Andre de Tot's uh, Day of the Outlaw. Yes. Really yes. great film. I'm not going to talk too deep on it because I've talked about it on the podcast before. Really cool winter, um, winter western. Uh, really great looking film. Really interesting film. Highly recommend it. Uh, the second film, and I, I watched this, me and Neve watched it the other day. It was her first silent film. Um, she wanted to watch it because she's like really interested in old Hollywood. Um, mm. You know, like, this, like the different starlets and the gossip and all that kind of stuff. She's really into that stuff. Um, so when I was showing her the stuff that I bought, she picked out this film. She was like, oh, Clara Bow. She's really interesting. So uh, the film is Wings, which some okay. of you may know was the first film to win Best Picture in the Oscars. It was the very first Best Picture winner. Um, so we sat down to watch. She was like, can we watch this when it came in? And I was like, I'm just going to pre-warn you. This is a two and a half hour silent film. And she was like, yeah, that's fine. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and she loved it. And honestly, I loved it as well. I wasn't expecting to love this film as much as I did. It's super entertaining. It's not slow at all. Like you'd honestly forget it's a silent film, which is so much happening. Um, it's basically like a World War I film, uh, by the, as you can guess by the title, it's about pilots in mm-hmm. World War I. And like, it's just so astonishing how well made it is because they literally, it's like Top Gun. They had cameras up in the planes. They were really flying these planes and doing all these tricks and everything like that um there's you know it's no no hollywood trickery here it's legitimately pilots in planes flying around sort of putting on dog fights and stuff like that um it was like just as good as it is in like the first top gun movie and this film came out in like 1927 um yeah really 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 impressive film super entertaining like I watched it, yeah, I got to the end and I was like, yeah, I'm not surprised. That's actually like a like I'm not surprised this film won Best Picture. This this film is really awesome, and I'm surprised like not enough people like don't talk about it more when talking about like old Hollywood films or talking about like silent films, especially because of just how super entertaining it is. Um, so if you get a chance to to watch it, uh, I'm sure at some point it'll be streaming on the channel. But I'm surprised like if it, like it wasn't in the first place. It's a really really great film. Uh, the last and final piece I got was a new release um, from Eureka as a, a slip of a film called Execution in Autumn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Uh, it's a Taiwanese film. Yeah, I, honestly, I had no idea what the film was about. I just thought it looked cool. Um, it's, <laughs> the film's a bit darker than I was expecting. It's about this guy who, like, kills his pregnant, a pregnant woman. And when he's on, like, death row waiting to be executed, his... Well, a family member, I think his grandmother or something, um, wants him to basically um, get married and have a child while he's on death row in order to, so the family name doesn't die out. Um, so like, it's not, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not, it doesn't sound like a fun film, um, but like it looks gorgeous from like the images and stuff on the back. It, like it looks like a really nice film. You know, it's a, like Eureka's slips, it's, it's a nice packaging and stuff like that. So yeah, I picked it up. The good thing about Eureka is when you do blind buy from them, like it was only like 15 euro. So what are you out of? Yeah. You know, it's not like, it's not like, you know, I've dropped 
you know, like, well, you guys have $40 for a standard price of a criterion. It's not like I, I dropped major money on it. That's what I do like about Eureka. They are very uh, economic. Um, yeah. They are in terms of their pricing and stuff. Um, they, they do, they do. I think they're very reasonably priced for what you get for your money. Like wings cost me 12 euro. And like, that has a bunch of stuff on it, like in terms of special features as well. So um, yeah, those, those are, those are my pickups anyway. This director that you picked up execution in autumn, people don't yeah. really talk about him much. His name is Sing Lee. Yeah. Um, but he was, you know, I'm curious for all, like the Edward Yang, you know, is sort of like this next generation of Taiwanese filmmakers that is getting a lot of attention. I know there's a few more, but it almost feels like he's one of these classic, you know, Taiwanese directors that maybe doesn't have a lot of international acclaim. Yeah, or... maybe it's because he came before. So like this, this film here, Execution in Autumn, is 1972. Like mm -hmm. Edward Yang and Hao Xiaoxian, they they all sort of came to prominence in the 80s and the 90s. So he yeah. was like. He was like, I think he's considered like the grandfather of Taiwanese cinema That's because cool. he was like the guy who got the ball rolling. Like to, to bring it in the modern meme context, he walked so that Edward Yang can run, um, <laughs> you know, that kind of way. So, yeah, I'm interested to see because I'd honestly never even heard of him. Um, but, you know, the film has really good reviews and it looks it looks super interesting. And it's not even that long. It's like 99 minutes. So I'm sure I'll watch it some evening sometime soon. Um, I'm looking forward to it. As I do, I have, I've been wanting to get more into Taiwanese cinema. Um, I've watched a couple of Edward Yang's. Um, I own some House Yosien, but I haven't actually sat down to watch any yet. Um, I did watch uh, a Xiai Ming Lang film. Um, which one was it? Uh, yeah, you saw that recently. Goodbye, Goodbye Dragon Inn. Um, yeah. That's a good example of slow cinema. Um super it's 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 a good film though it's really engrossing even though like nothing happens <laughs> it's still a really engrossing <laughs> film um i'd recommend that one if you haven't seen it what, what do you got zach i know you're taking a break from picking stuff up so i don't know if you have any yeah i did a i did an extra job recently uh basically it's like a part-time it's like the company i work for we can do like gps hookups and stuff and i had one funny enough on my way to philadelphia um so that worked out great but I made a pretty decent amount of money from that. So I was like, okay, I'm going to buy like one thing. And I went for, I think I mentioned it last time. I thought about getting it. Um, but it's the time bending mysteries of some Iranian director. I can't pronounce it's Chakra Mori, right? I think something yes, like that. that guy. That's a, yeah. That's a yeah. Guy. So hopefully I'll be getting that here soon. I, I was going to get it on the 30th because I was like, well, it's partner month. I don't want it to go up after partner month. So I was like, I'll go ahead and order it then. For some reason, Vinegar Syndrome shuts their whole website down on the 30th. Yeah. Didn't realize that. So I was like, great. I had to wait till the next day. But it's all it all worked out. But I'm excited to get that. His stuff sounds interesting. <laughs> like I'm into 70s style slasher movies and sci-fi vampire movies. So I was like, that that sounds good. And that guy who um made that what 24 frames, what was his name? Abbas Kirasami. Yeah, he put his put that director's name at the end of that film, so he must really like it. Yeah, can we can we just take like twenty seconds and talk about how amazing Def Crocodile is? Yeah, they've been doing like some killer work. Like the Unknown Man of Shangdor was kind of this like French, uh, I forget German, I think production, right? Delta Space Mission, they went to Hungary. Ilya Muromets, they went to Russia. Then they went to Iran for Shahram. Uh, oh, it's not Shakram, sorry, Shahram Makri. I had the K's and the H's backwards. And then the new release is just like this finished kind of uh, 
uh, tale, uh, what's it called? Like a, like a cultural sort of, you know, story. Um, and so they're like truly producing obscure world cinema. Like, I, I love these guys. Like, I, I'm just so fat, you know, we, I was really intrigued by, by Dennis and uh, Craig when we had him on. Come but, back to the podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, listen to that if you haven't. Um, but the, the depth of knowledge they have across like all countries is just so impressive. Like they're, of all the labels, I think they very quickly jumped up to the one I'm, I, I'm most anticipating every month just to see just from a purely discovery perspective. Um, I'm, I'm just yeah, I, I plan on getting caught up with them. I was a little frustrated when I got on Vinegar Syndrome and realized they had another release. I was uh-huh. like, close. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they're exciting. I, I really like what they're doing. They're, they seem to be coming up with some cool idea, uh, stuff. And, you know, totally. I, I'm into it. I want to see when they're assault on Precinct 13. Uh, I guess Shouts can do that would be my guess, but I'd like to see their restoration finally release. It's supposed to come out this year, they said, right? I think so, but I mean, with pandemic and stuff, and I don't know, I only assume Shout's doing the release, because I don't think they're doing it. No, they're not doing it. They confirmed that, but they have, yeah, I don't think they've announced who it's, I don't know, I could be wrong, but. Yeah, Shout's done done Carpenter stuff in the U.S. so far. Exactly. All right, and welcome back. Now we're going to be talking about a good version of Ghost Dog uh, called uh, the Samurai from 1967 <laughs> by <laughs> Jean-Pierre Melville. Uh, after, a, after a professional hitman, Jeff Costello is seen by witnesses in efforts to provide himself an alibi, drive himself further into a corner. Um, I don't personally like any of the descriptions I found, but that was the best one. Uh, so, Adam, you recommended this movie. So what do you got to say about it? Um. So I, I alluded to this when we talked, when we sort of announced this in the last episode that I am a, I'm a Melville fan. I think he makes really just slick, cool, um, slick, cool films. They're usually centered on crime, but he's not, he's not sort of pigeonholed into that. Um, he's a lot like Scorsese in a way in that regard. Like he makes great crime films, but he's definitely a man just of cinema. Um, this is my second time seeing The Samurai. I loved it the first time. Loved it this time. Uh, it's just Alain Delon is just like the epitome of like icy, cool, under pressure, steely eyed. You just, you know, if you were trying to get out of, you know, if you were trying to get out of a situation, if you were like stuck in the shit and you needed to get out of that situation, he's the man you would call to get you out of that situation. You know, like he's like. He's like the less chatty Winston Wolf to bring it back to another uh, Tarantino reference. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I love this film. I think it's great. I really like Melville as a director. Um, I've seen a, a good few of his films um, and I've, I've liked every single one. I've never seen a bad film that he's put out. Um, super stylish. Uh, I like the soundtrack. Kind of has um, almost like kind of like a Giallo soundtrack. Yeah, in a way. I thought that too. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's sort of like, I had to look up who did it afterwards. I'm like, this is hardly going to be um, Morricone or something. It does kind of have like a Morricone vibe to it. Uh, it ended up being just some just some French guy who didn't do anything else sort of major. Um, but yeah, it's a really cool soundtrack. Alain Delon's amazing. I think the plot is really good. Um, it is obviously different to Ghost Dog in that respect. It's not really about mob people coming after him it is a straight sort of cat and mouse between him and him and the police um 
yeah, that's that's to sum it up, really. Yeah, I, this film is awesome. It's just it's just an epitome of cool is, is the best way to put it. Um, so the world agrees with you. Um, it's ranked as the 206th best film of all time. 206. Whoa, that's super yeah. high. Yeah, it's really, really high. It's impressive. So I say that must be his highest ranked film, is it? Oh, good question. Uh, let me do only one I can think. Higher, right? Breathless. Which one? Is that, is that Melville? That's Goddard. No, that's. Oh, Goddard. that's why I was mixed up. Gotcha. See, this is my first Melville. I the only one I can think that maybe might be closer is Army of Shadows. Oh, yeah. Great job, actually. So it is Army of Shadows is lower, but that's the next one on the list. Yeah. Okay. Um, where's the Circular Rouge? Because I, I would think that would be. I'd happy. Sit, that'd have to be third. I would have to, uh, maybe fight night with Bob the Thunder. Yeah, Bob. I was going to guess Bob the Flumber, but um, let me see. Army of Shadows followed by, yeah, Red Circle, Circular Rouge. Oh, Second Breath, I haven't seen yet. And then Bob the Flumber. Haven't seen um, Second Breath either. So uh, see, I, I see where I got mixed up now, by the way. Uh, he plays in Breathless. He's an actor in it. Oh, uh, is he? Yeah. He plays Parvelsko, the writer. Okay. Fair enough. I, I've never seen the movie, so, but he's. I've seen Breathless like three or four times. I have no idea who the fuck you're talking about. Yeah, so. I, he's just he's, he's an actor. <laughs> Fair enough. Must Did be a cameo or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, just a quick question about Ghost Dog because it ties into my point for this. Um, obviously, it's a it's a movie about the mob, but are there police in it? There are police in it, right? Ah, uh, I don't recall seeing police in Ghost Dog. Okay, I can't remember if there. Well. Because what I was going to say, and this might not be true if there's no police in it, but what I was going to say is that, you know, Ghost Dog is kind of like a mere uh, reverse image of, of the samurai. And if it's predominantly about police, but then it has mob or, or crime family in it. Because, um, you know, there is there is a connection to kind of a crime family in the samurai. Right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, for sure. There, it's, it's very much a footnote. But yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. He um, doesn't like Ghost Dog. He's not working alone. He's working on, on behalf of someone. Right, uh, right Jeff right. Costello. He didn't just walk into some nightclub and say, "Fuck this owner, I'm going to kill him." Right. <laughs> he is a hitman, so there's definitely yeah. an aspect of it. But they're not the main antagonists like they are in Ghost Dog. Yeah, exactly. Um. Uh, anyways, but yeah, I think uh, so. Just real quickly, then before we get to, to Zach, I I hope that um, well, actually, not say I hope. I'm curious to see what you think about this, Zach. But uh, for me, this film is just is very cool. Uh, uh, but beyond it being cool, I think it's there. There's real tension created. Um, I I love the scenes in the police headquarters uh, where they're kind of tracking him through the subway system, and and people are you know turning on and off their wristwatch based on his location. Um, and there's, you know, I think I, I'm trying to imagine watching this in the 60s. I think this came out in 67, right? Um, and just trying to imagine watching this and seeing that technology. It's kind of cool because, you know, Bond was only in 62. So this idea of, of putting a little bit more advanced technology into crime and, and sort of action movies, I think it was starting, but I don't think it was. I still think there was a lot of mystique and, and kind of an aura around that would be my guess. Um, and I think it was a very clever way of showing how you could track um, this this almost like almost like a ghost dog through the system uh, as he navigates the subway system, um, and so I, I thought that part really jumped out to me as being cool. But 
just the, I mean, interactions he has with the, the women in the movie, I think are amazing. Uh, both they're, they're layered and, and textured. I think Melville brings, like you, you mentioned him being kind of an art house director that makes crime films. I think that's a fantastic summary of, of why I like Melville so much. Um, he just creates beautiful tension in the silences. And I think he gets his characters to do a lot with their facial expressions. Um, and they're very kind of nuanced in the way they uh, engage with each other. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, brilliant movie. Uh, I love it. Um, and I'll definitely be watching it again. Um, for me, this was actually my first Melville film. He's kind of, for me, kind of like that Trufon or Bergman or that idea that you kind of see their name. You're like, that looks intimidating. And I think I'm going to pass. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, it was actually a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be. It was, it was actually a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I've read that Scorsese is highly influenced by Melville and I can see that. But what I do find interesting about that is I think Scorsese has more energy, but that's not necessarily a knock towards Melville. Just like comparing them. I was like, you know, this is a very methodical feeling film. Everything kind of takes its time. And, you know, it's not exactly, you know, you, Adam mentioned Goodfellas, the, uh, uh, just a few minutes ago and I was like yeah that's kind of a high energy type film but mm -hmm. the comparisons are definitely there um, one thing I really liked of course was Costello uh, the entire time he's on all I could think of that uh, that foreigner song uh, Cold as Ice uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just it, it's just uh, I, I think you guys have both said it now but I mean it's kind of the best summation of it it's just a very cool movie like it's so cool yeah, and like the um, part, probably my favorite like line in the whole movie is when uh, the guy asks him, he's like, "What well, you don't speak? When, uh, you know, I have a gun. Are you not going to speak?" He's like, "I don't make a habit of speaking to people who uh, have a gun to my head." He's like, "What is that a code?" He's like, "No, a habit." And I just like that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. Obviously, Alain Delon. It's 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 an iconic performance. It's mm -hmm. one of those performances that is instantly recognizable and you know it's been it's been redone and rehashed you know dozens hundreds of times you know anytime you see a sort of slick silent cool criminal they're pretty much playing Alain Delon in in the samurai you know ghost dog had elements of it uh Zach you had mentioned just in the in the interim um between segments the, the driver Ryan Gosling's character from Drive you know the the exact same kind of persona this sort of cool silent very quick thinking able to sort of improvise you know at the sort of drop of a hat you know it's just yeah it's just just the epitome of, of icy coolness under under pressure especially yeah it Speaking of cool, can we can we talk a little bit about Natalie Delon, his wife, who plays uh, his mistress in the, in the movie? Yeah, she's kind of amazing. So I'm just on her wiki page. So this is not information that I have, you know, just in my head. But so this was her first movie. I, I mean, I think she was she was good in it. I, I, you know, whatever. I, she was yeah. she was serviceable. She played the role well. But uh, at the time, she was considered the most beautiful woman in the world, and she had multiple partners in her life. So I, I just want to like quickly go through this. I just think that sometimes, you know, life is as interesting as art, right? So she married a, um, um, what's it called? A diplomat and moved to Morocco for a while. 
got divorced in Morocco, came back and married Alain Delon. They, they ended their relationship. And then a few years later, she got married to Louis Malle, or at least was, uh, I guess, partners with Louis Malle for, for a year. And then um, the following year was with Franco Nero. Oh, wow. So, That's awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Like, what a life. <laughs> I would I would date or slash marry any of those guys. Like she picked like the coolest people in the world. Or say she she liked that cold, you know, Django is also like that cold as ice character too. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> totally. Um and so yeah, you have and the, the opposite in uh in um what's the American title of it? Lift to the scaffold. What's the American Elevator to the Gallows? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The complete opposite of uh, Jeff Costello is in that film. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, uh, but anyways, yeah, she she was good in the movie. But the real the real star from a female perspective for me was the other woman from the bar, the piano yeah, yeah. player. The piano player, yeah, she was. Very um, what's her name? I can't find it quickly. Um, oh, Kathy Roser, uh, Katie Katie Roser, um, was her name, and she was a French. Uh, she's a French woman. Just super interesting. Like I, I love their relationship. Um, Cause there's all, this is one thing I think that certain directors can do well, where you could tell there was something between them, even though she had a job to do. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that it never played out or never turned into anything um, is, is probably worth discussing, but throughout the movie, there's that whole tension that's created with silence just around how she's going to respond to him. You know, her reactions when he comes in, he meets her in very pivotal moments throughout the movie. And she's equally as cool as him. I mean, uh, uh, the character, but also the actress. Like, she matches him, I think, scene for scene. So I was just very impressed with her. Yeah, she she has that sort of um, that gravitas yeah. to her as well. Um, you know, I, I don't know much about the actress. Like maybe she was just, I just looked at her credits there. She only had a few films. Maybe she was primarily an actual singer, and I don't know too much about her. Um, but she just has that face that you just get drawn to. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the same way that Delon, you know, maybe it's the eyes, I can't really put a, a pin on it, but yeah, they just have that look that sort of really, really draws you in, um, which is which is interesting, which kind of brings me to one of my favorite parts of the story. Um, so I don't know, did we talk about the plot? I don't remember if we did or not. That's it. Okay, maybe we should actually just talk about what the film's about. Um, so we've alluded to it. So uh, Jeff Costello, which is Alain Delon's character, um, he lives by the code of the samurai. I'm just going to give it, I'm not reading this off. I'm just going to have a really brief sort of overview of it. So he's hired as a hitman to kill uh, the owner of a very popular sort of bar, music bar. Uh, he does that, literally just walks in, kills him, walks out. Very cool, but doesn't, doesn't get away per se because he's brought in with a bunch of other people to be brought in front of the witnesses. And what I thought was really interesting is for a man with such a devastatingly, you know, sort of handsome, rememberable face that like half the half the witnesses are like, no, that wasn't him. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's I, I, the reason I'm bringing this up now is because I've also mentioned that he has a face that really pulls you in and sort of makes you take notice. So I just found it really humorous that like most of the witnesses couldn't remember if that was him or not. Or like they weren't sure um, if, if yeah. he was the guy who sort of walked in at the time when the killing happened. 
And that I poor guy it. who was certain, he was like, it's him. And they were yeah. just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Everyone, <laughs> well, to be fair, the police did think it was him as well. That's yeah. why they were following him for the rest of the film. But yeah, everyone else kind of threw him under the bus a bit. They're like, no, get a mustache. <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> no, different. Why'd you shave your mustache? Wearing a different color hat. No, um, you know. Uh, but I, I love that whole that sort of first like 30 minutes of the film I, I love that so much the whole yeah. police procedural aspect with the the detective walking between all the different rooms talking to different people yeah. especially when he drags in um his his mistress and, and her husband or boyfriend whoever it is um when he drags them in and he's sort of going one room to Jeff to her to the husband and back and forth and stuff yeah it's Zach brought it up earlier it's a super methodical film um you know it's every everything is down to like a very minute detail it's a very stylish film it's very methodical it's surgical almost in terms of how everything is sort of planned to the detail in terms of how it's shot and also the story beats and the different aspects of it it's just i don't remember how long it is i think it's about just under two hours or something like that yeah but there's not like a there's not a a single wasted frame it's a very economical filmmaking in the respect where they don't waste time with anything every scene has a purpose every moment has a purpose and yeah melville honestly I, I maybe it's weird to call him underrated considering he has a film in the top 250 of all time according to they shoot pictures but i feel like people don't talk about him enough maybe yeah. it's just me maybe it's because you know, he was making film, a lot of his sort of best films were being made in the 60s and the 70s, where everyone tends to gravitate towards the French New Wave. So people like him, him and uh, George Henry Clouseau, they kind of almost get sort of brushed aside because they were making much sort of less radical films but really great films yeah. in, in a more of a classical sense. Yeah. You know, like Leah, like, you know, we're talking about Clouseau, we have like Wages of Fear and La Diabolique, you mm-hmm. know, two sort of cornerstones of cinema. You have Melville films like Le Samurai, The Circle Rouge, Army of Shadows, which is phenomenal. Um, and obviously just before the French New Wave started, you have Bob Le Flambeur. Um, you know, I feel like not enough people talk about Melville and give him the respect that he deserves as a, as a technical filmmaker. Um, I, I do think he's, he's phenomenal. Um, and I, I re- if you're listening and you haven't seen this film or any of his other films, just jump in, you know, be like Zach who hates French new wave. <laughs> um, and was probably afraid this is going to be another one of those films. Um, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely not it's just like uh, the Scorsese comparison I think is apt he's kind of like the French Scorsese I agree with Zach that you know Scorsese films are maybe a bit more have a bit more oomph to them or a bit more energetic I think Melville films are a bit more surgical um, but I think that's kind of a really good way to, to describe him he's like the French Scorsese you know there was um after I uh, watched it, I, d- I was doing a little reading about like the Scorsese um, comparisons to this. And, you know, this was a huge inspiration for Scorsese, specifically in Taxi Driver. And I, I thought about that for a little bit. I was like, well, sort of. But I think what it really comes down to, which I think is kind of an interesting mix of both these films we're talking about, is Travis Bickle also has like this 
quality about himself of what he believes. Like in his mind, he's this Western hero. Like that's the whole idea, but he's honestly just a psychopath who wants to, you know, cause destruction. Um, and it's kind of making, I wouldn't say making fun of these ideas. Like when you have like uh, Costello's character and you have Ghost Dog's character, but in sort of a way it is like, it's like, look, if somebody actually had this weird code that was basically delusional, they would be considered psychopaths. I was going to say, when you brought up Taxi Driver, I was like, yeah, this is kind of like if Jeff Costello was mentally ill. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is what it would look like. But there's probably something in that, right? Like what's the difference between a hitman and a serial killer? It's just sort of like their targets, right? Yeah, who who, who is the, is their money exchanged? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's a good way to t- to look at it. And, and I so mean, maybe, you look at Travis Bickle, who is about to commit like an assassination. But the ironic part is, it's not for political reasons. Like he's not killing a politician for any good reason. But he could be read that way, which is a big part of that film. Um, you know, towards the end, there's a lot of readings to that. But yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a thin line. I mean, everybody who, okay, this probably is not true. So it's a bit, but I'm just going to say this and then we can, but like the people who kill are probably driven by an internal code that they believe in, right? Whether, and so I think like society's reaction to that code that they believe in is, is very different depending on sort of who's getting killed and what the reason is, right? Like, I remember growing up thinking, I, mean, I was like 12, 13, 14, before I understood the world, thinking it'd be cool to be a hitman. Not because I had any idea if I could actually pull it off or not, but just there was like a romanticism around it, right? Like, it's so cool to like, just get paid $2 million for like, you know, a couple hours of work. And, and then the Western outlaw, yeah, people dreamed about that, like. Yeah, but like, you know, if you grow up thinking you want to be John Wayne Gacy, like that's a very different kind of discussion, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but they both probably have their internal codes um, that they, they you know, live by. So anyways, I don't know. But I, want, I don't want to make too much of this point, but it, it, at the end of the day, we are talking about killers. And I just think it's interesting. Like, it's, it's okay to talk so casually about Alain Delon. Uh, he's not perceived as a threat to like, women and children or, or innocent people, I guess, right? And this is one thing I like so much about the, the premise of the show, Dexter. I, I, I'm kind of mixed on the show, but I, I love the premise because, you know, like what if you have nature versus nurture discussion, right? Like what if you have these tendencies towards becoming a serial killer or not having any issue killing, but you have a strong parental figure or a strong caretaking figure that helps you kind of guide that and, and, and shape that in a way that's, uh, um, allows you to work in society. And I think all of a sudden it becomes uh, a show that people can watch pretty easily. Uh, Cause they're sort of like, it, it just checks enough of those boxes that they're like, oh yeah, good. He's doing it for the right reasons. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, yeah, but I mean, he's, he's still killing. Since we're on uh, Scorsese, that kind of reminds me of that idea that uh, Jack Nicholson's character in The Departed, where he asked like young Matt Damon, he's like, what's the difference between a, uh, what, a cop and a criminal? He's like, doesn't make a difference when there's a gun in your face and it, it, it kind of has that idea too like there's this very thin line between morality and a code and just not having one at all yeah it's very thin I suppose you see the same in like you know those uh 
those loose detective felt like a dirty harry you yeah know, like yeah in a way you know that flout the rules but like is, is it okay to disregard society if it's for the greater good exactly you know? yeah you know you see those sort of stereotypical sort of detective movies and shows where you know they, they don't follow the rules but they get results you know that kind of, <laughs> you know, that kind of stereotype that's uh-huh. kind of like the police version of that i suppose yeah you know? Well, just because I want to sneak in a, a Marvel reference in every episode now, if we can, this is the whole <laughs> the whole premise of Civil War that I actually did enjoy, right? Even though I was a little bit iffy on how they got to this idea, but how does the world react if there's collateral damage every time that you're doing good, right? And I think that's an interesting topic to explore, and I, I thought that was cool that they did it there. Chris, uh, you need to watch The Boys now. Okay, okay. <laughs> I heard it's good. I heard it's. I've heard it. It's um, good. I, I, I did just, while you mentioned Dirty Harry, there's two quick points I wanted to make. One was, I got a lot of Dirty Harry vibes from this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that was pretty much the whole point. I just think there's a lot of similarities in those characters. I think Clint Eastwood is, is a pretty good um, uh, American sort of counterpart to Alain Delon and his ability to pull this off. Yeah. Um, and then I, I also really wanted to call out the cop. So Francois Perrier, I'm probably getting his name wrong. But he was a coward in Knights of Kaviria. Do you remember that? No, that's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, so it was, great film, though. He's a very good actor. Um, uh, he's, he's a very accomplished actor and a good character actor, which I think there's certain people that can take that ability to, to become almost a chameleon in a movie and, yeah. and have a leading role that, that kind of fits them perfectly. And I think this role fits him so perfectly. Like that scene where he's with Natalie Delon in the apartment, where he's walking her through what it takes to be, uh, if she can make a statement saying that uh, uh, Jeff Costello was not with her that night. Is I, I love his acting in that scene because he's he, he's menacing, but but being uh, you know a friend at the same time. You know who he reminds me of. He reminds me of the main character from uh, a citizen above. Was that a citizen above suspicion? Oh, investigation of a citizen yeah. above suspicion. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. like if that main character wasn't a psycho. That's that's probably like if he was actually a good cop. That's oh. probably what he would be like. And if we want to connect it back to Clint Eastwood, he was in two of the Dollar Trilogy movies. Well, there we go. He's the villain in two of those. All cinematic yeah. roads. I used to think all cinematic roads led back to Renoir, but in fact, they all lead, lead back to Clint Eastwood. Okay. They really do. I'm just saying, Harry Callahan would have got results faster than this cop did. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, the guy was, his name was John Maria Valente, I believe. I'm just looking him up. I didn't, I didn't know. That's the guy from Investigation of a Citizen. And he was also really big into Italian cinema. So, um, it's almost like you know this, this, the link. You what? <laughs> I was like, they should have taken uh, Adam's advice. Got any more Coney to do the soundtrack for this? I know. Yeah, that's probably why. That's that's probably why they probably wanted them, and then they couldn't get them, so they said to the guy, "Just make a Marconi sounding soundtrack." <laughs> <laughs> Listen to some Jalo films and make it sound. Um, yeah. No, but this guy was. I just wanted to look this up really quick because I thought this was right. He's also in the guy from Investigation of a Citizen was in a fistful of dollars and a few dollars more. Um, so yeah. there, there's, a, there's a tie there in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, we're, we're talking about the summary. Yeah, did you want to talk about the soundtrack at all? Because then I think that's um, 
Uh, I just think it's very really cool. It reminds yeah. me of Marconi's one from uh, What Have You Done to Solange. Uh, oh, reminds me of that one a bit. Um, but yeah, it's a cool soundtrack. Uh, I really liked it, and I was surprised when I didn't recognize the name of the person who did it. Pretty much all to say about it. It was a little bit not uh, what you would expect from a crime film, I think, right? And it, but it, but in a way that worked really well. One thing, uh, you were mentioning the technology earlier, and one part I was going to laugh if this is what it was, the part where they're putting the bug up, and at first he puts the big one up, and I'm like, there's no way he doesn't see that. And I just thought, I was like, was that the size of a bug yeah. in 1967? Yeah, 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 yeah. Luckily, he put the little small one up. I'm like, okay, he might not see that one. Uh-huh. <laughs> but good on that bird. That's the most loyal bird I've ever seen. Wait, is that the connection to Ghost Dog? With yes. Yeah, uh, I yeah, just realized okay. that. That makes sense now. Yeah, well, that makes sense. because we had just seen Ghost Dog, I was like, are they going to kill that bird? <laughs> yeah, like, luckily he, he was just warning him. Like, hey, by the way, some people were here. Yeah. Uh, but the bird was intelligent, right? Like he was pointing, yeah. he, he pointed him like directly to where things were the whole time. He was like communicating with him. There's a weird connection. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if Melville thought of this. I just thought it was interesting that they both, the bird and him felt like these cage type characters like obviously the bird doesn't get a choice he's choosing to be so isolated but they have this relationship of basically he keeps the bird alive and the bird helps him stay alive as well like that's their it's like the symbiotic relationship they have which i just thought was kind of interesting because the bird's only in like three scenes and he i'm sure he annoyed the piss out of that cop who had to listen to that recording of just that bird chirping around for hours Yeah. yeah 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 (laughs) <laughs> dude that word caged is really interesting because i mean the if you think about it from one perspective jeff costello doesn't really have freedom right even though he's so he works well within that system but he he doesn't have the freedom that he really thinks he does and, and, and it's a choice too like i think part of the reason he's so isolated is because he chooses to have this code where if he would just you know cave in and he could do what these you know criminals are doing who actually do live this sort of free life of it doesn't matter who gets hurt because you get money out of it and you can live however you want to live but he doesn't mm-hmm. believe that like mm-hmm. that's not his belief system like and i don't know if we're going to talk about the end i'm debating if we should but i think that's a good summation of his character and all that of you know that idea of honor towards the end I, I would like to talk about the end if, if it's okay, uh, if we need to do a spoiler warning, but I thought the ending, it changed my perception of the film. So I wanted to see y'all's opinion on that. Yeah, I'm cool with talking about the end. So we can put a warning, right? Yeah, yeah. Spoiler warning, ending, coming. Uh, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, okay. who got Gran Torino vibes from the end? <laughs> yeah. We're leading it back to East All cinematic row is lead back to Clint Eastwood. <laughs> He's like a hundred years old. I guess it makes sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, no, one thing, um, and I'll kind of give I'm very curious of what you're going with, Chris. But one thing, um, in high school we had to read this short story, it was a Japanese one, uh, called Patriotism. And the whole point of that one is to go over the ritualistic suicide. I'm not going to try to say the actual word for the ritualistic suicide in Japan. I know it's with an S. I can't say oh, it. Se- seppuku. Yeah, that's it. 
Um, but the idea behind the thing is basically the man is left in a no win. He's a high general in the military, but his brother is the leader of the rebels that Japan is fighting at the time. And he's ordered to kill his brother. No decision he makes is honorable. He can't kill his brother. It'd be dishonorable. He can't go against his military. That would also be dishonorable. So the only honorable choice he feels he has is to kill himself in this sense. Um, so the whole short story is going over the long ass ritual to this. Like it's a whole day sort of thing when he makes this choice with his wife. Um, and I really feel it fits the end of this too, because he kind of is left in the same sort of thing. Like, yeah, he's been ordered to do this job, but he also doesn't want to kill someone who pretty much saved his life. Like there is not an honorable choice here because he's accepted the money. He's told him he would do this. He gave his word on that. But to do that would be to kill someone who did sort of save him in a sense from the police. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, we talked about this with Ghost Dog, this sort of, it's it's a sense of honor that is, you know, sort of beyond the modern world, really. Um, yeah. And even though the film is called The Samurai, I don't think it really, it doesn't have as much samurai-y stuff as Ghost Dog does. Right. But that is like, I think that's like a pivotal moment of him making an honorable choice um it's a very powerful ending um you know when they open up the barrel of the gun it's empty. See it's empty you know it's like a holy shit moment yeah because even though you never really thought he was going to kill her you know maybe you thought he was going to you know you know maybe try and bait the undercover cops into revealing themselves and he's going to turn and maybe try and quick draw them or something yeah it's just it's it's a very powerful ending. It's very cool when they open the barrel of guns, see the empty bullets. It is really like a wow, like holy shit kind of cinematic moment. It's a great ending. It, it's it's one of it's it's one of the sort of great film endings, I think, personally. Yeah. Maybe um, maybe even the two hundred and sixth best one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah, it's I think it all definitely links back to this sort of it, it's probably the sort of part that sort of close as sort of closely sort of links back to maybe the samurai idea of, of honor there there's one particular idea from the samurai tradition i guess but I've, I've gleaned just from watching samurai movies um i don't i don't know much outside of that but this idea that you charge into battle assuming you're already dead mm -hmm. and if you release yourself from from your hold on on preserving your life you fight differently and you fight with more uh strength and courage and uh, I, you know, I, there's two ways to interpret the ending for me, uh, maybe, or maybe more, but two different ways I, I could kind of pick up on. One was that he died like a samurai, right? He, uh, he, he was not concerned whether or not he lived or died. He just fought for what was right. Um, that, that's one uh, that I, I kind of thought about. And the other one I, I thought about was this idea that if he lives in this movie, then the memory of uh, the, the lasting kind of impression of, I don't think it changes the overall movie. It's still a great movie. Uh, but the ending would leave you feeling like maybe he's immortal or maybe there could be a sequel someday or um, there's a sense of, of optimism towards this guy that, that he's above death even or something like that. But by the fact that he dies, it, I feel like it adds a level of uh, fatalism or a, le a level of almost pessimism to to everything that happened before that 
of like all this great stuff still leads to death at the end. Uh, there's no real reason to pursue it. Um, so e either one of those I would be kind of okay with, or maybe there's a third I haven't thought about, but those are the two places my mind went to as I was thinking about what the point of the movie was. Yeah, and I actually think that's a really interesting point in the sense that, you know, in a lot of ways, this just seems like a normal job for him. And that idea that you charge into any battle like you're going to die. Well, this is this was just another job for him that had a couple speed bumps in it. But ultimately, it was probably no different than the 10 jobs he did before it. Right. And it's just this is just the one that cost him. And that was just the way to accept that. It's It's a very... I want to say nihilistic. It's just a very mellow way to go, I guess, almost anticlimactic, but, you know, still works in a really good way. Yeah. See, I kind of feel the opposite. I think the fact that he dies at the end adds an importance to everything that happened before rather than the opposite. Okay. Um, you know, he, he chose to, like, he didn't, like, he didn't have to, he didn't have to do this. You know, he chose to die for this cause, to save this woman who had previously saved him. He felt that that was important, that there was an honor sort of associated with this. She had already saved him. It was his turn to save her. This was the only way he could do it, and I'm okay with this. I think if we look at everything leading up to that as unimportant in the grand scheme because he just died anyway, I think that actually takes away from the power of the death because the reason he died is because of what's happened beforehand. You know, that, that idea that, it, you know, if she, you know, if she hadn't, if she had said, no wait, he is the guy, you know, when, when the, when the policeman asked her straight, if she had said, no, or even if she had said, I think it might be him rather than her going, no, that's not him. This would have played out completely differently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she, she saved his life. This was the only way he could save hers. And I think they're just as important as one another. Um, and I can I can compare this to another film, but it means spoiling another film, um, if I'm allowed to do that. Um, oh, we're in the spoiler section. <laughs> okay. Every movie is up for spoilers, guys. Sorry. So but I am curious is, what movie is it. This is what really there's a few things that annoy me about Drive. Um, but the thing that annoys me the most about Drive is the fact that the driver walks away even though he appears to die, the last thing we see is him go, it's just Ryan Gosling for like a minute, just going. And then he goes, okay, I'm just going to drive away now. And you're just kind of like, you know, like, is this dude like Michael Myers or something? He just got stabbed like pretty <laughs> badly. You know, this is, is this Jason Voorhees or something we're looking at here. And I just felt like it took away from the weight of the ending. Mm -hmm. Um and so like the opposite of the samurai, because I found that ending incredibly powerful. Whereas the ending of Drive, I kind of like go, oh, what's the point? This dude can just get stabbed mm -hmm. or whatever. And it doesn't matter. Who cares? You know, so, so obviously Drive is very much, as we mentioned, is definitely inspired by the samurai. Um, but I feel like they get, I feel like Drive gets its ending wrong and should have stuck with how the samurai, you know, if it was taking influence from the samurai, they should have stuck with with a similar ending, um, because I found it I found it to be very powerful because of the weight associated with everything that happened before. I understand where you're coming from. Like, why would he do this? This is like probably one job out of a dozen he's already done. You know, what's the big deal here? What's the big difference? But we can't really judge it on that because 
we don't know how many jobs he's done. This could be his first job. We don't know that. There's, there's no, we're not given context for, uh, like, I don't recall a moment where they talked about how many jobs he's done before. No, 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 no. it's true. We don't, we don't know anything. This could be his first job. This could be his first dipping the toes in this world. And, you know, this is just how it went. So, you know, that's, that's, that was my, that's my two cents on it anyway. Man, that would suck because he did actually a pretty bang up job on everything all considered. And that's how it ends <laughs> for him in his first job. Man. But at the same time, he chose it. This oh, is what yeah, he chose yeah. to do. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I don't think it's uh, pessimistic at all because he, this was, a, this was a, a decision he made. Yeah. Based on his code. Yeah. I, I don't. I, I, the, the crime family that paid him, they probably wouldn't have just gone to a stranger and given them two million francs or whatever to go do a job. Right. I imagine he'd done it before. But the rest of your point still stands. I, and, and to be honest, we don't know. So, we, I mean, we really don't know. Um, I, I felt like he was painted as kind of like a grizzled vet, but but uh, it's certainly possible that's not true. Like it would certainly seem that way, considering how experienced he is with evading the police and everything like that. But yeah, yeah. Again, I just yeah, we don't know how his other jobs have gone. Maybe this is just different to how every other job has just gone. You know, maybe maybe he never got caught by the police before. He was never in that situation. That was a a, a jail or not jail scenario. We, we don't, yeah. this is the thing, we just don't know, we don't have context for it. So I can only really base it on what we see in the film. Um, which, yeah, I, again, I, I thought the ending was fine. He chose it. You know, I would have thought it was a much, I would have, I would have classed it a much crueler ending if he was gunned down the police while he was, you know, running away or while yeah. he was, or if it was like shot down during a shootout or something. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't think the ending wouldn't have been as powerful. The fact that it's clear that he chose to save this woman over himself because she had previously saved him. You know, I, I, that's why I think makes the makes the ending so powerful. It's that idea of kind of going out on your own terms. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like I said before, he he chose this for himself. You know, like it would have been a different situation if he was, you know, shot during a shootout with the police or something like that while yeah. trying to escape or something. Okay. I think it would have been a completely different ending if that had been the case. But he, he he chose this. He knew what was going to happen when he whipped out the gun. He's already shown that he can tell who are undercover cops and who are not. He walked in there knowing what was going to happen. So. You, you know, this is a little off topic, but it does make me kind of think about this in the sense that that's, there's always a lot of comparison between like samurais and westerns for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. They're they're very influential with one another. Mm-hmm. But the way the hero, in a lot of terms, at least in spaghetti westerns, is kind of different. Like their job is self-preservation. It's a very anti-hero kind of thing. Like, sure, they're doing a lot of the same sort of things. They may have that code, but at the end of the day, it's not like the man with no name really wants to sit here and die. He's not gonna die for a cause. Right. He'll do everything he can to live and fulfill that cause where samurai is kind of different where you're like Chris was talking about, you're going into something with the assumption you're not going to make it. And that's, I don't know. I just find that kind of fascinating because of how much they're compared to one another and they kind of have a lot of overlap. So we're coming towards the end um, of this week's episode. As everyone knows, your regular listeners, we always close off at any other business. So just a chance for us to talk about something that we've seen recently that we, we want to give a shout out to. Uh, it doesn't have to be on the Criterion channel or anything like that. Just something that we saw 
that we want to want to sort of talk about and mention briefly. Um, I'm going to jump in um, because I was out sick from work a couple of weeks ago. So I was just watching, I was just looking for a bunch of easy stuff to watch. And if you've listened to our hot takes episode, one of my hot takes was me uh, taking a giant shit on the Friday the 13th franchise. <laughs> so, uh, you know, after talking with the guys about different films and stuff, I, and, you know, usually when I'm sick, I just like to watch like easy stuff, like nothing that's too heady or anything like that. So I decided to like watch a bunch of the Friday the 13th movies. So I watched technically four. I don't count one of them as Friday the 13th and I'll talk about it in a second. So I'm just going to talk about the four of them kind of briefly. I'd seen all these before, of course. It was just like rewatches, um, but I hadn't seen a few of them in a, in a long time. Uh, so based on Zach's suggestion, I watched Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I, I get what you mean. I get. I remember hating this film when I first watched it because of how fucking goofy it is. <laughs> but obviously like looking at, like watching it with fresh eyes based on what you're talking about with like, you know, sort of postmodern aspect and, you know, the idea that of being very self-aware, then I, I got a lot more enjoyment out of it this time. I still don't think it's like great or anything like that, but I certainly understood your viewpoint more after speaking to you about it. It allowed me to go in with a fresh view and the, the film's really funny. I, I, I suppose maybe it's the best thing I can say about it. Maybe that's not what you want to hear when talking about a slasher movie. It's, it's, a, it's a really funny film. Um, I mean, there's that funny. scene where he pushes the guy's head into the tree and it makes a smiley face. I yeah, like, exactly. It's, you yeah, know? I think I think it's very much. Like, <laughs> See, when I watched that when I watched that when I was 16, I thought that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my fucking life. <laughs> so, um, so I'll, I'll tell you how long it's been since I've seen these movies. You know, I, I haven't really watched them through since I was a teenager um, because I thought they were just dumb as hell. But yeah, I, 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 get, I get what you mean with this film. Um, it is there's a lot of tongue and cheek moments um, and it does sort of add a, an extra layer of enjoyment. Um, one thing that is not enjoyable in any way, shape or form is Jason X. That Fuck film you. is an absolute, that is an abomination. That movie's that amazing. Movie. That's not yeah. even, no, hold on. Like I was, I was totally ready to go in with this is going to be, like I was thinking of Jason X. Like when I think about this, I was like, this is definitely like one of those films, like it's so bad, it's good. It's like, so stupid and goofy that uh, makes it really entertaining it's not even like it's not even like goofy or funny or entertaining it's so bad in any in just every way it's awful it looks like shit it looks like like the set and the costumes looks like an early 2000s sci-fi channel tv series the story's boring that's the biggest thing i can say the film is boring as fuck for so much until, but it has like, the best kill of the series. It does. It has the best kill in <laughs> slasher history. With the, it does. Between that and Uber Jason, the whole rest, everything that happens in between is just shit and boring. <laughs> and there's nothing good about it. Nothing salvageable at all. So I'm going to swiftly move on from Jason X. That film is an abomination. <laughs> so the other film I watched, which I do really like, but I don't actually count it as a Friday the 13th movie because it just ha- doesn't have the vibe and it's Freddy versus Jason. Um, that one is much more a case of this is like Nightmare on Elm Street part, whatever, Freddy gets a bodyguard. That's yeah. like, you know, that's that's what the, is, it is definitely much more a nightmare film than it is a Friday the 13th film. But I really love Freddy versus Jason. It's just perfect early 2000s uh, schlocky slasher fun. It's really fun film. 
Um, I've always liked it. I've, I've seen it a bunch of times. It's one of those films I just watch every now and every couple of years just because it's just fun. It's just the best way to put it, really. It's, yeah. One of the, my favorite parts of Freddy versus Jason is the, that, that wide shot of him going through the cornfield on fire. Like, yeah. I think that's just such a cool shot. Like, Ronnie Yu is just kind of cool to have in sli- American slasher movies there for a couple of years. I would love to see him come back and do it again. Yeah, it's a super stylish movie. You know, it's 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 the opposite of Jason X. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's it's really stylish. It's just nice, just early 2000s schlocky horror. But like, it is actually, it's, it's a really enjoyable film. I got a lot of enjoyment from it. And then I watched the 2009 sort of reboot of Friday the 13th. And it's like, this is like low key, like the best Friday the 13th movie. Um, it's kind of weird, like how much better it is. Uh, like the first 20 minutes, it does peak in the first 20 minutes. It never gets better than that. Mm-hmm. But like, it's like super solid throughout. Like the story doesn't really make much sense at all. Um, like, you know, this rich douchebag's family has a house on Crystal Lake, but yet Jason's never walked up there before. Am I? <laughs> You know, am I just supposed to suspend my disbelief there? Yes. They've never that they've never come across Jason. <laughs> yes. And like how long they've had that house. <laughs> but um, and you know, why all of a sudden he goes to that w- weird redneck? What why does he all of a sudden want to show up there and kill that redneck dude as he's as he's looking at a porno mag? You know, there's a lot of stuff in there that doesn't makes no sense at all, but um, from like a story point of view, yeah. And and Jared Padalecki annoys the fuck out of me. Um <laughs> they I, I'm really glad that they've stopped trying to make him a thing. After Supernatural got big, they like really wanted Jared Padalecki to be a thing. And he was like showing up in horror movies all the time. And I'm glad that they've stopped that because um, he annoys me. And But finally, before I stop, they did Danielle Panabaker so dirty in this movie. They did her so... They just they done her character so dirty. That character who gets you know taken in the first 20 minutes i could not give a fucking shit about jared padalecki's sister danielle panabaker should have been the final girl and that's where i'll end friday 13 2009 i, I do want to note just on the uh, friday the 13th remake marcus nespel did that movie and he also did the texas chainsaw massacre remake okay. he sort of got the idea of how to do a remake like yeah, a lot of the story in Friday Thirteenth doesn't make sense, but it basically just like, hey, you know the first four movies that were good. Here's a highlight reel of them. Yeah, yeah and we'll yeah. do our own thing. And it's like, basically. it doesn't have to make sense. It's a Friday the Thirteenth movie. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But the yeah. kills are vicious. Didn't doesn't it have a uh, a human in a bag over a fire getting slow cooked in the first that's twenty minutes? The first yeah, 20 dude, minutes, it's cool. yeah. Yeah. it's awesome <laughs> the first 20 it's minutes just... are pretty brutal um i don't think the kills aren't as vicious for the rest of it they're all just kind of standard jason hits him with something you but know i, I want to see nispel do a, a unique or like his own movie because he creates atmosphere as good as anybody yeah like he brought he was smart like i think he insisted on texas chainsaw massacre to bring back the old cinematographer and it's like yeah he knew that was a big part of what made texas chainsaw it's, yeah it, it successful was its cinematography and atmosphere and yeah, he did a cool job of that just one last thing on 2009 before we move on um was one other stupid thing am i supposed to believe that jason can hit someone between the eyes with a bow and arrow from like half a kilometer away while they're driving a boat of course yeah. 
Okay. He, he's that's the greatest ar- archer that's ever lived. That's what I'm thinking. Like, get this dude in the Olympics. Like, he would get you gold, <laughs> you know? What do you, what do you think he does in between movies? Like, he just has a lot of time to kill, right? Just, like... He like, like sets a, up like little obstacle courses and like the uh, and like the lake and starts like okay I can make it. I want to see I want to see the movie where he's on Twitch. He's like some expert gamer in between kills. <laughs> <laughs> what else uh, is he gonna do? And ironically, he Twitch he Twitch streams the Friday the Thirteenth game, which <laughs> but he always plays the camp counselor for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> he gets he gets sick of the it's like it's like when like like why would you want to play a game that's your job you know you want to do the opposite so so what, what have go, you seen zach yeah go next zach um so with the uh vinegar syndrome course on out there halfway to black friday thing one of the things i got was thriller a cool picture um so finally sat down and watched that yesterday um it's kind of always had this reputation as being like this really down and dirty rape revenge movie kind of a la i spit on your grave or last house on the left it's a strangely really pretty movie like the way it's shot it it has like a lot of great use of color and it's shot particularly really well and so i decided to look up who the director was whose name i'm not even trying to use the swede um, who worked under Bergman for two films. And I was like, that might have something to do with it. Because he only ever did like three movies and he did one and a half of them were pornos. Um, but this one is kind of that half. And it's the only thing I'll say that's really awkward about this movie is they have this really pretty movie that, yeah, has some dark elements to it, but it's more like Female Prisoner Scorpion or the revenge film from 2017 that focuses a lot on style. But then you have these really close-up hardcore inserts of porn. And it just like <laughs> takes you out of it so much. You can tell it was like, okay, so we've got to like mandate this for a couple different people. So we need to have a version that has a lot of Sam Peckinpah-esque slow motion violence, which is a ton of that in there. And I was like, oh, good thing Sam Peckinpah did that four years ago so everyone else could do it but and then it the really it's just the porn insert you're like why are these here like if they were in like last house on the left or i spit on your grave but like yeah that makes sense it just makes no sense here but overall really good movie i can see why going back to tarantino why he ripped the hell off of this movie it's it's a cool movie uh christina Lindbergh is has no lines in the movie and she does great um really exceptional how well she does but that was my watch. There was, just real quick, to, I don't know if this is the reason why, but there's a movie that came out, okay, this was 73. Yeah. There's a movie that came out in 67 from Sweden called I'm Curious Yellow. Yeah. And it also has a lot of, uh, it, it's a funny movie with uh, some, some very close-up shots of, of uh, um, penetration. And I think, like, there must have been something in that sort of, like, art culture at the time in Sweden of trying to push... The boundaries of, of what could be in a film because you know i am curious got banned it, it was the movie that led to a massive battle in the u.s because the u.s tried to ban it uh and so it actually helped shape the definition of pornography in the u.s through like a three-year-long court battle or something maybe five years is that know. the one where it's like i don't know how to define porn but i know what it is when i see it i, I think that's actually where that quote's from yeah. <laughs> um and so i do wonder if there's something to be said of just like 
people trying to push the boundaries of, of what could be done in a, in a movie a little bit there from Sweden. Yeah, I mean, because it, it, it was real fascinating because I was real surprised. I'd heard about the hardcore insert, so I kind of already decided, like, okay, this is going to be an I spit on your grave type movie. And then there's, like, these beautiful shots outside of, like, in the fall. I was like, this is, the you know, she has an eye patch for to match, like, every outfit. It's very color-coordinated. Yeah. Sets are obviously had a lot of thought into them. And then you just have this and you're like, oh, Jesus Christ. I was like, <laughs> it just comes out of nowhere. And you're like, oh, okay, there they are. Maybe I shouldn't watch this in the living room with my window open. <laughs> uh, perfect. What well, about you, Chris? What have you watched? I'll talk about what I watched quickly and then I'll get into what we're going to watch next together. Okay. Um, so remember how we talked, we spoke about Rainy Dog? Mm-hmm. So I finally finished the trilogy. Uh, I had seen Ley Lines before, but it had been a long time. I wanted to rewatch it. And I think as much as I liked Rainy Dogs, I think Ley Lines might be Mickey's masterpiece from if you want to look at him from like an art house lens, mm -hmm. as opposed to an um, exploitation director. So, you know, there's the theme. I, I don't know if y'all have seen Shinjuku Triad, but it's the same theme in Rainy Dog. And then he does it here as well where it starts off with some despicable actions or some despicable characters or some characters that are on kind of like the wrong side of the law in one way or another. And then over the movie, you get to feel like a sympathy towards them. And you get to see this other side of them where mm, you see that they also desire to have like a love or a bond or that, that, that family kind of relationship. And in Shinjuku Triad, it's the relationship between brothers. In Rainy Dog, it's sort of a romantic relationship with a, with a uh, I guess, you know, uncommon family or an atypical family. And then in Ley Lines, it's friends. So basically what happens is over, throughout the movie, uh, it starts off almost feeling like a clockwork orange. You're like, where is this going? Because it's this band of, you know, just basically rebel rousers or troublemakers that go and they, they, they hurt people without thinking about it. Um, they, they strong arm people. Uh, there's kind of a funny scene in the beginning, the guy, it's, it's so extreme where this one, the main character, his name is Ruchi. He gets denied a travel passport. Mm -hmm. And the, the guy who's working in the um, passport office, you, you see a kind of a wide shot of the whole room. And you see this character Ruchi walk over to a potted plant that's about six feet tall. So you can imagine the size of the pot that the tree's in and he, he struggles and he picks up this pot and he walks over to the counter and he throws it at the guy's head and it cuts right as the pot breaks over the guy's head. And you're like, well, that's an extreme reaction. So, <laughs> um, and then the next scene, it cuts to his probation officer. He's like, what did you think that was going to accomplish? <laughs> um, so there, I love, we, we talked, we, we've spoken about Del Toro, how, he likes to highlight the monster and bring empathy to the monster. Mm -hmm. I actually think Mieke does this as well. Uh, and and I, I like the way that he does it. You know, this whole trilogy, he calls the Black Society trilogy. Uh, trilogy. I think that's a, a poor translation. I think it's really a movie about crime, a trilogy about crime, right? And looking at criminals from the lens of, of empathy. And so as this character of Ricci, he's not connected to his home family. He turns to his friends in this life of crime. And over the course of the film, you, you, you see him transition to this honorable guy. He still is a criminal, but
but you you get to see where his loyalty lies and how deeply he cares for his friends and so it creates like a more uh uh you know a deeper kind of view into this guy's character and it's not so much the sociopath but you just see where his loyalties lie and you get to see him from a different perspective so i really like the way that Mike does this um and of, of all the movies in this initial trilogy i also think this one is probably the highest budget I, I would imagine and it looks the best it, it looks very beautiful um he doesn't rely on rain and and shadows as much as he does in some of his the first two i think for low budget directors if you have rain shadows uh color like like filters you can it kind of masks i think sometimes a lower budget um uh, or a lower quality of film or whatever but here i don't i don't think he needs to do that a lot more out in the open um and uh it's really quite a Quite a, quite a beautiful movie, actually. I, I think it's um, one I would highly recommend. I'm curious to check them out because I wonder how they, because I know they're not like direct sequels or anything. They're just kind of like uh, thematic sequels, right? That's kind of the idea behind all of them. Yeah. So I'd be it, kind of curious how they all kind of go together in that sense. Uh, I, I would love for to talk about that with you if you see them. I mean, basically, it's all people that are of Japanese descent living in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And it's different ways that that impacts them. And then there's also a stress on kind of feeling like a fish out of water, feeling out of place, um, both culturally as well as in with with family. So, did Mike live in Taiwan or something? Is that him? I don't know. Because it seems like interesting for him to explore that three times. Definitely, yeah. To be so specific, right? Um, yeah. So there's that. Um, we're going to change course quite a bit here. So I feel like we've, uh, due to just our personal interest, you know, we've, we've had a lot of genre films as our second choice um, or French New Wave. One of the things we haven't done is go deep into sort of classical Japanese cinema. And so I thought that would be a fun episode. Um, there's the film club film that we just got assigned. So I haven't seen it yet is from a director that I have really no history in. Uh, apparently, if you lived in Japan in the 50s, Kisuke Kinoshita was a name that you would know very well. Apparently, he was extremely popular at the box office and had a run of, of very successful films. Uh, and for whatever reason, was not as popular um, internationally. But one of his films just got assigned. It's called... Um, 24 eyes. And so I thought that might be a nice way for me to finally see an O2 film and use this podcast as an excuse to see an O2 film as a pairing. So 24 eyes was 1954. And the film I'd like to show in, in parallel with that, for us to discuss together was just a few years before from 1947. And it's called record of a tenement gentleman. So uh, that's the film I want to uh, recommend uh, that we watch along with the film club film, unless y'all have any violent reactions. Um, I mean, the only thing I had a violent reaction is, Jesus, that 24 eyes is two and a half hours. I did yeah, not violent, realize that. It balances out, though, because yeah, because the other one's short. Only, I just know. <laughs> that one's short. Yeah, that's what that's how I am justifying it in my brain. Because <laughs> I was like looking, I was like, oh, let me add these to my watch list. So I have to ask you guys and wait, what the hell are we watching again? And I was like, holy shit, that movie's long. <laughs> yeah. About a school teacher. Yeah, it seems like it's going to be long for the content because it's, yeah, I, I don't, uh, the the basic synopsis doesn't exactly paint a picture of a 
very plot heavy film. Um, so I'll be interested to see how it goes. Yeah, I'm, this will be an interesting week. And then I got to figure out something for Persona because I know, uh, Adam, you're itching to talk about Persona. Um, I am itching to talk about Persona. <laughs> so I'm sure, you, I'm sure you can find something nice and weird to pair with that. Oh, I'm sure I can. <laughs> so, but I'm excited to check yeah. these out because I've never seen either one of these directors. I, I was actually going to have, I was going to pick I Am Curious Yellow to pair with Persona so we could have a hour and a half discussion on the definition of pornography, but um, I <laughs> uh, decided to go with this instead. Um, I was just, waiting for um, you to pick something from seconds. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, make, make it easier on yourself, Zach, and just pick Mulholland Drive again and we'll just watch that again. Yeah, we, we could just like, ed- you can re-edit that just back in, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll just do <laughs> Exactly. It'd be very Lynchian of me. I'll put it in. I'll do it backwards. <laughs> I'll put it in with the audio backwards and we'll see what people think. <laughs> Perfect. So that wraps up the episode, guys. Um, listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, you got a bit of a preview of what's coming up in, in the next couple of weeks anyway. So 24 Eyes and 24 Eyes and Persona Record are going to be the, the headline, headline films. And we're going to have some pairings of those as well. <laughs>